Thank you. Did Tim ever communicate to you the story of the colonel, the Korean colonel? Did you ever? Did, you may not have known that. Anyway, it was interesting. There was a colonel that came over from Korea. Uh, apparently, his wife was a believer. You know that story? And they, were, they somehow got directed to Bear Lake. He was over here doing some studies, language studies, other studies. And um, anyway, the colonel got saved. A young guy got baptized. And he's based in Itawan or whatever the ITW whatever is. So he's back in Korea now, and Tim's been able to make contact with him. You know, but isn't it interesting that from that big country of Korea, that guy comes over to Bear Lake and is able to make contact back with Tim in the very town that he was uh, to be based in. Interesting to see the Lord work. Well, let's turn to the book of James, chapter 1. This is James' saturation weekend. So we start on Friday night, continued on Saturday morning. And then we're going to continue this morning, and we're going to continue this evening in the book of James. And as I said, it's a little bit of a reversal in the sense that we're going to do chapter 1 this morning, Lord willing, verses 1 through 12. And then tonight we're going to do an overview of the book, a little bit of an outline, and just some of the suggestive themes that are found throughout the book of James. So I'm going to read again, beginning in verse 1 of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations or various types of trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith, worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways." Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. As we were noticing in some of our initial studies on Friday and more particularly on Saturday morning, the book of James is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, one of the earliest epistles or letters that was written in the New Testament. It has a very distinctly Jewish flavor to it. Uh, it wouldn't surprise us in that when, while we refer to him as James, rightly so, in the English, his name in Hebrew would have been Jacob. And so Jacob writes now to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. And if you remember your Bible history from Old Testament, Jacob had twelve sons, which became the nucleus or the, 
the foundation of the nation of Israel, those 12 tribes. So Jacob, James, now writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. It's a very early book, and we'll get into that a little bit more in detail tonight. But a book that, as far as internal evidence and other evidence that we can glean from uh, the Word of God and the timing of the writing and so on, the history of the Scripture, that would have been written before Paul wrote his letters, and before Paul was given the clarity of revelation concerning the church, which is the body of Christ. And so for that reason as well, the book has a very uh, distinctly Jewish flavor. Uh, the style is much like the book of Proverbs, and if you've read the book of Proverbs, one of the features of the book of Proverbs, as far as the style of the writer to the Proverbs, is that he seeks to do what I, what I call taking away the middle ground. Everything is very clear cut. Everything is black and white. It's either this or that. And when you take away the middle ground, what you do by doing that is force people to make an evaluation. You force them to come to a judgment. So the writer to the Proverbs will say, here's what a fool is, and here's what a wise person is, and there's no in-between. Which one are you? And James writes much in that style. Now, that sometimes makes it a bit difficult to um, wrap our thoughts around some of the things that he says because it is so very clear. You know, we'll come to one of those uh, type of things right here where he talks about this man who wavers who will receive nothing of the Lord. Cut and dry, you see. What does he mean by that? And we'll have to probe that a little deeper to, to come to some understanding of that. It's also very much written in the style of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you'll find certain Beatitudes, blessed is the man that, and so on. So it reminds us a lot of that style of writing uh, as well. And uh, as I think about it, there is a sense in which James also uh, sets forth a tone that is very similar to some of the Old Testament prophets the themes of equality and the themes of inequality and the themes of justice and righteousness and riches and wealth and the wealthy and their treatment of others and those kind of things. James sort of sounds forth a prophetic tone in his book as well. He puts forth in this book a series of tests, which is very interesting if indeed it is perhaps the first book or one of the first books written, first epistles written certainly, that he would put forth these tests as to whether or not we are genuine or not. He'll talk about what he calls pure religion as opposed to something else, the facade or the outward just appearance of, of religion. What is pure religion, you see? And he'll put forth interesting tests uh, concerning other features of life, very Practical. You might simply call the book of James a book that is written to communicate that faith is to issue forth in practice. And he's going to focus more on the practice side of it than he is on the faith side of it. What does it look like if we were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? He writes initially to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. And I'm going to, you might as well keep your place in the book of James, I'm going to turn, if you'd like to turn with me, to the book of Acts. Just a few verses beginning in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 2. You remember that gathered in Jerusalem at that time, it says, Acts chapter 2 and verse 8, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt and the parts of Libya and about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, and so on. So you see there were Jews gathered in Jerusalem at that time that already had been spread out throughout the rest of the world. But later, when you come to Acts 8, for instance, after the stoning of Stephen, we read in Acts chapter 8, in verse 1, that Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution, persecution against the church which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So they were scattered abroad. That word scattered abroad is the word that is still used by Israelites today to speak of what they call the diaspora, the scattering or the spreading out. It means the spreading of seed, interestingly enough. And persecution came, but in that persecution, God spread the seed so that the message began to be carried into different places by different people. So now, these are not just Jews that he's writing to, strictly Israelites. These are Christians. These are Jews that have come to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. And because they've come to believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, they're beginning to suffer persecution. And it's interesting, at least to me, to think about that one of the first things that James would address with them in the midst of that persecution is not only about the trials that they face, but about the genuineness and the reality of their faith as they face those trials. And so, uh, look further in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So the persecution continued. And then in chapter 11, one last verse in regard to that. Uh, Acts chapter 11 Let's see if I get the right verse here. Uh, oh, well, I should look in 11, not 12. Maybe that would be a help. Um, it says in verse 19, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and so on and so on. Now, that's interesting. Again, you should at least observe the phrase and think about what it meant at this stage. They went preaching the word to Jews only. We tend to forget because predominantly in this room, there may be one or two um, non-Gentiles in the room that I don't know or know about. But primarily, we are predominantly Gentile. The church today is predominantly non-Jewish. But that wasn't true at the beginning. It was exclusively Jewish at the beginning. It wasn't until what we read about in Acts chapter 10 when Peter went to the house of Cornelius. God then 
evidenced in a very manifest way that the door had been opened to the Gentiles. And then by the scores, by the hundreds, by the thousands, the Gentiles began coming to Christ. It was an amazing thing. It, it just really befuddled Paul in a sense. Here were his own people, the nation of Israel, who wouldn't believe in the Messiah God had sent them. But the Gentiles were coming. The people who were not his people now were the people of God. And so James writes to these Christian refugees that had been scattered throughout the world and were suffering persecution. So in the section we have before us this morning, verses 1 through 12, I'm just going to take it up in, under three headings. First, the testing of faith, or faith's test, verses 1 through 4. Then faith's resources, verses 5 through 8. And then faith's reward, verses 9 through 12. You'll notice he says first that as uh, he writes to these 12 tribes that were scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or various different forms of trials. Now, while he says various and different forms of trials, which trials can come in various ways, testings can come in various ways, difficulties and so on, these were primarily the result of their faith in Christ, and of their believing in Jesus as the Son of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he tells us four things in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 that are sort of action words, if you will. He says, first of all, there's something to count. There's an assessment that needs to be made. And that's an accounting term that's found in verse 3. Knowing this, knowing this, and then he says, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 2, uh, to count it all joy, that counting word. And then the second thing is knowing, something to know. Verse 4, something to allow to happen. The word let always is a word in Scripture that puts the ball in our court, uh, that puts the responsibility upon us to allow this to happen. And then in uh, verse 5, something to ask for, something to count something to know, something to allow, and something to ask for. I mentioned in our couple of prior studies that there are many verses in the book of James that even though after 30-plus years of reading this book and having taught it numerous times, they still trouble my little brain, and I still struggle with uh, you know, really getting at uh, how to do what it says count it all joy when you fall into various trials because it's not my natural tendency when the difficult things in life hit to count it all joy. We don't count the trial itself as the joy, but there is an assessment that must be made. I'm going to suggest at the outset before we even dive into the verse that verse 2 is possible because of verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. And verse 12. So we understand that there's something that we are to know. We understand there's a purpose behind it in verse 4. We understand that God will give us wisdom in verse 5. And we understand at the very end there's a reward. That enables us to make the proper assessment. To do the right kind of accounting, if you will. You can't do proper accounting if you don't have right numbers. Somebody feeds you wrong information, you're going to come up with a wrong you know, something wrong in the ledger, so to speak. So you have to put the right stuff in to end up at the right 
you know, summation there, if you will. And so when we put all those in and factor all these things in, that then enables us to do what's said in verse 2, to count it all joy when we fall into these various types of trials. Particularly, though, I'm going to again state that emphasis, the particular emphasis would be because of those trials that happen because we are a believer in Christ. Particularly those type of trials, but not exclusive to those. Not exclusive to those at all. So what is it that we are to know then in verse 3? I'm going to suggest that there are three things that we should know when it comes to trials and testings, which can be extremely difficult. Number one, that the Christian is not exempt from problems in this life. And I know while that may sound very basic, there are large segments of Christianity, people who profess the name of Christ, that have the mistaken notion and wrong doctrine that you as a believer should be exempt and are exempt. Somehow, if you only have enough faith, you're not going to have trials and difficulties and problems. And those are, in effect, a result of your lack of faith in God. Now, while we may think that that's, you know, not rightly so according to Scripture, again, there are large segments of people who sometimes get their faith rattled because they put their stock in that. I used to hear a man on the radio from time to time when I was in Jacksonville, and he ended every broadcast with the statement, you don't have any problems, just have faith in God. I thought I'd like him to meet Paul the Apostle someday, and look at Paul and say, Paul, you don't have any problems, <laughs> just have faith in God. And, and Paul say, you mean all those times I was beaten with a whip, and all the time I was shipwrecked, and I spent a night in the deep, and I was deprived of food, and cold, and nakedness, and prison, and persecution by my home, own brethren and all. That was my problem. I just didn't have faith in God. <laughs> like to see what Paul's response might have been to that fellow, you see. But there are people who do it. It's just not true, is it? Secondly, trials and difficulties that come our way, they are not arbitrary. They are not fate. They are not chance. How do we know? Because verse 4 will tell us, won't it? Let patience have her perfect work. Verse 3 will tell us the trying of your faith produces something. There's something that is produced here. There's something that's, that's going on. There is a meaning to it, you see. And third, if you'll uh, bear with me just a moment, I really almost hesitate to do it in too rapid a fashion except to say, that when we begin to think about the subject of trials, I'm going to give you some of the purposes of trials. I'll give you at least ten purposes for trials that come into the life of a believer. And I'll probably give them too fast for you to write down, but maybe you can listen back and get them. I apologize I didn't do them in some other fashion on a PowerPoint or outline, but I didn't. First of all, um, trials can be a, uh, because of... God's disciplinary program. And by discipline, I don't mean punishment. I mean that it is our spiritual education. The word chastening is a word that is much broader than just something that has to do with punishment. It is our spiritual education. And let's face it, for 
at least most of us, I would think I'd be safe to say that. When it comes to education in general, it's not always the easiest thing, is it, to apply yourself to the lessons. Now, to some people, school and academic things come, you know, like that. Well, I can say it's not true for me. It may not be true for a lot of people. The courses may be hard, but they're for the purpose of your education. And life is like that as God has designed the program of chastening. Secondly, they may be, according to Hebrews chapter 12 as well, for the purpose of correction. There may be things in our lives that the Lord needs to get our attention and correct certain behaviors. And the way that he does that is by bringing things or allowing things to come into our life that will get our attention. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. This is going to hurt you more than it does me kind of thing, you see. But it has a purpose. Third, for our development. Um, Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 that uh, after you have suffered a while that God might strengthen you and establish you. Amazing, isn't it? Trials don't destabilize us. The Lord has a way of using them to establish us. 1 Peter 5.10 um, The book of Job refinement. When I am tried, I'll be brought forth like gold. Refinement, to remove impurities, if you will, to bring them to the surface. Number five, identification with Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, filling up that which is left behind of the sufferings of Christ. We go through trials sometimes, and we are able a little better to identify with what the Lord Jesus suffered when he was here in this world, righteous and holy as he was. We bear some of that as well as we bear his name. Sometimes difficulties can come. We learn from John chapter 11, don't we? This sickness is not unto death. It's to the glory of God. Imagine that. Sickness can be to the glory of God. Can be used to manifest God's glory in a certain way. Number seven, qualification for service. Paul, can you submit to us your resume? Yes, I will. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I was beaten of the three times, I was put in prison, I was shipwrecked, I was, you know, a night and a day in the deep, and on and on and on goes the list. Those are the things, he says, that qualify me as a minister for Christ. Number eight, to develop trust. Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. We learn to depend upon God in the midst of trials in a way that we don't in any other way. Empathy, number 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. He comforts us in all our troubles that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort we have ourselves been comforted of God. Empathy, being able to empathize with other people. And number 10, what I would call the higher purpose of God. I get that from the book of Job. I mentioned, I believe it was yesterday, that part of the problem with Job is Job didn't have the book of Job. 
And I mean by that, he didn't know what's going on in chapter 1 and 2. He didn't know that in the courts of heaven there's Satan and God, and there's this dialogue going forth, and, you know, he didn't know that. All he knew was everything he had was gone. All his children were gone, and, you know, he was devastated. And then his body and the physical suffering he went through. And I believe that when Job said, I believe it's in chapter 3, the thing which I fear most has now come upon me. I think what he meant by that is he felt like God had abandoned him. The heavens were brass. God wouldn't hear him. The thing which I feared most is come upon me. Because remember, Job daily offered sacrifice not only for himself but for his children lest they sinned. And so he knew nothing about what's going on. There was a higher purpose at work, though, wasn't there? God was doing something. So those are some of the things that we can know about trials. Now, back in the book of James, in verse 4, you notice what is produced. Patience, perseverance will have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, brought to complete maturity, lacking nothing. In other words, there's something that is done by these trials that could not be achieved any other way. When these things have their perfect work and you allow that thing to take place, and that is you don't buck against it, you don't run from it, you submit yourself to God through it, it produces something that couldn't be produced any other way. Secondly, God's resources for us, or faith's resources in the midst of trials. If any man lack wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Wisdom, prayer, and faith come before us in this chapter. Wisdom, the writer to the Proverbs which is one of the wisdom books of wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. It begins there with the fear of the Lord, reverence for God and respect for God's authority, submitting ourselves to God's authority. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs is skill for living. And let me tell you, as well as you already know, when you're in the middle of a trial, you need skill. You need some help charting or navigating the waters of difficulty that you find yourself in, where are you going to find it? You're not often going to get it from the people who work in the office with you. They're going to offer you some kind of wisdom, but it's not going to be that wisdom that comes from above. They're going to say to you, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. But that's not the wisdom you need. Because wisdom in its purest form is really seeing things as God sees them. Wisdom is to see things from God's perspective. That's what we need in the trial, right? Because the world will offer you all kind of stuff and advice and you know suggestions and what you should do and how you should do it. But we need the wisdom that comes from God. We need to see it from His perspective. That seems to me what James is talking about here. To see it from his perspective. I was thinking again about this. There's a, uh, a poem. It's just a short poem, but it reminds me so much of my grandmother. I baptized my grandmother, my father's mother. She was 82. 
And I believe she came to faith in Christ, and it was a joy to be able to baptize her. She couldn't get out of the house much, but she got out for that one day for me to be able to baptize her. And uh, it's an interesting story. But anyway, my grandmother was confined to the house for many years, and she had one hobby that she did. She was a very, how would you say, frugal woman. You know, she would only turn her hot water heater on when it was time to take a, a bath, whenever that was. Wash dishes, she'd boil the water in a teapot on the stove, you know, that kind of thing. But her one extravagance in life, if you will, was she loved to do needlepoint. She did beautiful needlepoint, uh, very fine petty point type stuff. Even in her 80s, she, she didn't quit because her eyes were bad. Her hands just got to where she couldn't do it. So she did lots of things, coverings for chairs and other stuff like that. But she did these needlepoint tapestries. I mean, they're, they're you know half the size of the screen almost up here. And we've been the recipients of a few of them, thankfully. But she just finished those things, and then she had a, a room with a table in it. She'd just throw it on there and start another one. You know, she had a stack of them when she died. Beautiful stuff. Real tiny thread. I mean, if you've ever seen anything like that, they're just, you know. But it's interesting. You know, if you turn that thing over... All you see is a bunch of jumbled up thread. And that's the basis of this poem. The poem is called The Divine Weaver. It says, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Think about that. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. And so when it comes to trials, to think of God's purpose, what the divine weaver is doing, how he's weaving the dark threads to bring out the brilliance of the pattern of gold and silver and so on. It's interesting, isn't it? But we often only see the underside, and it looks like a bunch of jumbled up loose strings until you turn the canvas over. And there's the picture, all complete. Ask of God, verse 6, prayer. I take great confidence in that. I take great confidence in what Paul says, let your requests be made known unto God. And you that are parents here, it's so good to see the children, so good to hear the Scripture verses. I just delight to hear those every time I come. Those little children up there telling us those verses, just fantastic. Thank you, all you mothers, because you dads didn't do it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you work together, but whatever. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, um, listen, I know you as parents, I hope you as parents, when your children ask you for stuff, you don't give them everything they want. <laughs> but sometimes you do give them stuff they ask for. Sometimes you say no. Sometimes you say not right now. Sometimes you say you're not old enough. Sometimes 
you say yes. At least I hope you sometimes say yes. Well, isn't the Lord big enough to filter those requests? Unless it's something directly the Scripture tells us, you know, there's no point praying for this because the Word of God's clear on that. No point asking God for something that He's already said in His Word. You know, not going to happen. But there's so much in life that goes on that He doesn't say, you know what you do? Ask Him. (laughs) He's big enough in that sense to filter the request to say no, not now, maybe later, you're not ready yet, maybe yes. Ask of God. Ask in faith. That's linked to God's character. He gives liberally. He doesn't reproach you. He doesn't upbraid you. He doesn't scold you if you come and ask again and again and again. It's the character of God. And we have to rely on the character of God in the midst of trials, don't we? I'll tell you, you ask. You're in a situation with a choo-choo. And your little baby's going to have to have brain surgery. And you don't know that he's not going to be damaged for life from that very surgery. You ask. And you trust God's character. And you ask God if there's some other way even. But you have to trust Him in the midst of it, don't you? Plenty of situations in life like that. And now you ask without doubting. Boy, that's the one that gets you, isn't it? (laughs) Don't waver at all. I want to see the hand raised of everybody who's never once wavered or, you know, thought 100% exclusively that that's going to happen. And see what I mean? So that tells me the verse has to mean something else, right? (laughs) Because we're all done if that's it. If you're telling me I got to believe God and my faith never wavers even a little bit. And I never doubt at all. It's done. I'm over. I'm out. Not going to happen. So, because the one that waves, wavers and doubts, he's like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not, listen, let not that man think that he receive anything of the Lord. Why? Because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So I'm going to say that there's at least a twofold application to this. First, to the believer. And so as a believer, we come in faith. We ask God because we believe. Hebrews 11.6 He that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder. You see, you must believe. But secondly, we notice that that same word is used in James chapter 4 for an unbeliever. That is, the doubter, verse 4 Draw, I mean, verse 8 of chapter 4, Draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purify your heart, you double-minded. I'm going to suggest to you that it seems to me that that's that man. That man will receive nothing of the Lord because he's not a believer. He's divided in his mind. He doesn't trust God. And it's interesting that in the language of the Scripture... You remember the verse, you'll know it when I quote it, Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, when I read it. Speaking of Abraham, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And that's the opposite of the double-minded. It's the same word, but it's used in a negative fashion. 
Abraham was not double-minded. He didn't stagger at the promise of God through unbelief, you see. So that man seems to me to be the one who does not believe God, and therefore he receives nothing. And finally, faith's reward. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. The brother of the low degree can rejoice in that he has exalted. Because God is at work in your life, as is evidenced by this trial and the purpose of God and what you know in trials, that the living God who controls the entire universe cares enough about me to involve himself in my education, in my spiritual education. God cares enough, me personally, to get involved in the education of my life. And the rich who have been made to see the temporary nature of those riches and wealth that will pass like a flower that fades when the sun and the heat of the day burns it. Let him rejoice if he's come to that place where his riches have been such that uh, he sees them for what they are and they haven't become that trap that would block him from coming to God because he now thinks, I got it made. I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. And in verse 12, those that go through it, the reward. Blessed are those that endure those tests and temptations. For when you are tried, you will receive the crown of life. But there is a qualifier. The Lord has promised that to them that love him. Listen, there's people who go through trials in life. You know, I mean, people who face stuff in life and come through on the other side. I mean, they write books about them. They make movies about them. They're not going to get this reward unless they love the Lord Jesus. See, this is different, isn't it? They may never write a book about you or a movie be made about you for your great feats of accomplishment. But what you go through in life, because you love Him, and you're willing to face it, and take it because you love Him. Well, for that, He has a reward. It is not meaningless. It is not empty to say of what we read in Second Corinthians in chapter 4, that He's working in us a far more an exceeding eternal weight of glory. You know, there's a fantastic scene that's found in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of things there that kind of uh, almost defy explanation in some senses and hard for us to wrap our imaginations even around. But God seeks to stimulate our thinking th through our imagination. He wants us to think about these things and gives it to us in vivid picture form. In chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, John begins to describe... The city. And he says in 2121, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was just one ginormous pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, 
transparent glass. And as you already know, the pearl is a product of suffering. The mollusk, whether it be cultured oysters, whether it be a conch, <laughs> that little bit of grit that gets in there and begins to irritate, and then that mollusk secretes that mother-of-pearl solution, and it forms that beautiful pearl. But it is a product of suffering. And the gates of that eternal city, which will be the dwelling place of the redeemed of God, twelve enormous pearls. There's been a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering in the lives of believers. Those gates, the gate often speaks of government in Scripture, doesn't it? The place where business is done. The very basis of God's government of the universe is based upon suffering. The suffering of His Son, the Lord Jesus. No one's ever suffered as He did, that man of sorrows, who suffered not for anything He had done, but for your sin and for my sin. And the very suffering of the Son of God becomes the basis of the government of that eternal city of God, which has streets of gold that are so translucent they are like glass, gold that has been purified to the point that it's crystal clear. Where are you going to find gold like that? Peter says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than the gold that perisheth, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Job would say in Job 23.10, When I am tried, I'll be purified, and I'll come forth like gold. Is it possible that the very streets of that place that something has been produced an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The sufferings that we have gone through in this life. You know, the light of that city, the glory of God is the light of that city. It's going to shine through those pearls. That those pearls will be used to bring out the brilliance of the glory of God. <laughs> it's still hard to wrap our mind about it, but we take heart in that the Lord is doing something. There'll be a reward, the crown of life, life eternal with Him forever if we know Him as Savior. Father, thank You again for Your Word. Help us, we pray. Speak to our hearts. Comfort those that are in any affliction and trial and difficulty, Lord, we pray. A lot of hurt in the world. Believers have a lot of hurt. Things we go through, hard to take, hard to deal with, Lord. And we're to count it all joy. And we can really only do it, Lord, as we make the right assessment. And I confess before as I stand here and say those words today, easy sometimes for me to say them up here. Another thing to go through them, Lord. So help us to be able to apply these things and to be what James says, a doer of the word and not a hearer only. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. No one ever suffered like him. No one ever loved like him. No one ever cared for us like him. And if there's any in this room that don't know him as Savior, we pray today they would realize that his suffering, that suffering that he endured, provided a salvation for them that will carry them all the way through to glory if they trust him 
come to him by faith. We give you thanks in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.